Today, sales teams are more distributed, moving faster than ever before. But most enablement and training is slow to build, hard to change, and often doesn't drive results. So the good folks over at Lessonly built a powerfully simple enablement solution to help sales teams like yours ramp 50% faster, continuously improve, and close up to 75% more deals. Lessonly empowers leaders to quickly create, update, and share branded bite-sized lessons that reps will actually take on any device. Make enablement and feedback personalized to each rep. Quickly identify skills gaps, provide specific coaching, recognize great performance, and get back to revenue-driving activities faster. Check out Lessonly.com, L-E-S-S-O-N-L-Y.com. If you're in sales, check this one out. This episode is brought to you by Spiff. Want real-time transparency and visibility into your commission plans? No more payout questions, miscalculations, or hours spent on commission reports or disputes. Automate commissions with Spiff and stay motivated, not distracted. Go to spiff.com forward slash Colin to get started today. That's spiff.com forward slash Colin. And now back to the episode. Welcome back to the Colin Cadmus podcast. This is episode number nine. And today I am joined with one of the most successful East Coast SaaS marketers of the last decade. She's from Massachusetts, went to UMass Amherst, started her career as an account manager and client service supervisor. But then she went to work for a company that would change the trajectory of her career forever, Zoom Info. Anna started at Zoom Info in 2012 as a marketing communications manager and climbed the ladder for eight years, all the way up to VP of marketing. She led Zoom Info's marketing through an enormous growth phase and successful IPO in June 2020. And then in November, Anna found her new home as chief marketing officer at Spiff. She's one of the few people I know who has worked for 13 plus years across only two companies. She makes it look easy, but we know it isn't. And today, we're going to get to learn firsthand how Anna achieved such enormous success early in her career, and we'll find out what she hopes to do in the future. Anna, I'm so excited to dive into your story. Thanks again for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Likewise. So look, you went to school for communications. I always like to start with the college degree, right? Because I think when we go to school, we all pick these degrees and we think we know what we're going to do with our lives. And then the stories kind of unfold, right? In typically different directions. So you picked communications and education in school. What were you planning to do after school at that time? Did you have a sense? Was it marketing or like what was in your head then? Yeah. Um, so I always thought I was going to be a teacher my whole okay. life growing up as you know, you go to school, you see, what do you see for careers? Mostly teachers. So I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, and then when I went to school, I realized, oh, maybe this, I took some classes and I said, oh, this PR thing looks really cool and interesting. So maybe I'll, I'll you know, double major in that. Um, and then throughout my college career, so I had to, to become a teacher, you actually have to do some student teaching hours. And I quickly realized after maybe my third classroom that, wait, it wasn't just the first two that I didn't love, it was, you know, all three. And so I realized at that point that maybe teaching wasn't in the cards for me, but I still really enjoy that aspect of bringing new people on and, and getting them, you know, uh, ramped. And so there's, there's a part of that that I still sort of take with me every day. Um, so maybe it wasn't teaching little kids, but you know, there, there's some aspects of that, I think in my career, even today. Yeah. It's interesting. You say that. Cause like when I got into sales, really the same year you started, you know, at, uh, at zoom info 2012, um, you know, I knew I wanted to get into sales, but then I started to realize that I really like training and, and I'm like, wow, I would have been a great teacher. But then I realized I was like, did I pick the wrong field? But then I'm like, now I'm just actually like a really high paid teacher. Right. So it's actually just better. Like you're doing the same thing, but you're just making more money. So, um, but yeah, I think every successful VP, especially in the early days, like we all have that teacher 
you know, gene, I think in us, I think you have to, and it, and it makes you, uh, it, it puts you in a position where I think you're naturally viewed as a potential VP. And that's what we're going to, we're going to get into, into that in a little bit. Um, but so talk to me about your first job, right? So you finished school, you went to, uh, to work. The first role was, uh, was like account management. Yeah. So the first uh, job I had out of college was at a company called Brown Brothers Harriman. Um, and so similar to, I think a lot of people get out of school, you're like, all right, I'm going to work in the city. Uh, what mm -hmm. are you going to do? I don't know. Something in finance just seems like the right thing, you know, easy enough type of position to get into. There's a lot of entry level roles there. Um, and so I sort of realized quickly that, you know, I sort of moved on through the through my career within that organization into different roles. Um, and I started to take on more of a leadership position. So I managed a team relatively quickly. Um, and then in 2008, things sort of started to slow down a little bit in finance. Um, yes. And so I went into a client uh, success role um, and sort of managed a team there as well. And it was sort of my first experience into working really cross-functionally with every other organization. So we were um, sort of the voice of the customer on, on our behalf. And it was um, our customers were focused on B2B as well. And uh, Brown Brothers Harriman now sort of considers themselves a, a technology organization, although they are in fact a bank. So similar to like State Street. Um, and so there was a lot of opportunity to get a sense of what do clients actually want from us? How do we position things um, internally? And so I realized that a lot of what I was doing was somewhat marketing, right? And, and that, that probably was what I was the most passionate about. Um, and so that was where I realized that's probably the next step in my career. Got it. And, and then so the stars aligned and you found really the perfect company at the perfect time. Uh, how did that happen? How did you come across Zoom Info? And I, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll transition to it, but I'm curious like what the stage of Zoom Info was at the time too. Yeah, absolutely. So Zoom Info has been around for over 20 years at this point. So when I had joined, it wasn't um, like a true startup in that they were, you know, desperate for money or, you know, but, but we were continuing to evolve as an organization. Were um, they seed stage at the time? No. So, so even at that point, um, I do have to say, so the founder, the original founder and CEO, Jonathan Stern, um, had gone for a round originally, but never really used any of the money, which I think, you know, now wow. looking back is interesting, but it was. So did they bootstrap it? Yeah, it was pretty profitable. I mean, by the point, by the time I joined, we were pretty much almost profitable at that point. Um, oh, wow. And, I had no idea that was the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, and, and it was built. So he, um, the founder and CEO at the time, so Jonathan, he really was, he considered himself chief scientist. So his title was uh, founder, CEO and chief scientist. And so uh, a big part of it was really how you build the best technology. Um, and then, you know, marketing was one of those things that sort of came afterwards. Um, and right. so they were able to sell the solution, right. And, and prove, um, prove that there was a benefit to it. Um, when I joined the organization, um, they had just had a bit of a turnover and the marketing team really was only a couple people. Um, there was somebody who was um, a Salesforce admin so that that time that had reported into marketing, um, somebody else who was responsible for email marketing, um, okay. one other person and then me. And so uh, when I first joined, what sort of my role was, was, and it was my very first week there. I remember this, like it was yesterday. I think I must've started on a Monday and on Tuesday, they were like, oh yeah, by the way, we have a big event that somebody needs to go to. Could you just go? And it was, I believe it was the Eloqua Oracle event. So 
obviously at the time it was just Eloqua, one of the biggest events that we have, um, if you think about sort of, you know, starting to sell to marketers. Yeah. Um, and I remember showing up the first day at this event, not really 100% sure of what I just signed up myself, signed myself up for, what it is that we do. And I had customers come up to me or prospects, I guess, come up to me and say, oh, hey, what do you do? And so I had to just figure it out. And I honestly, like looking back, that was such an amazing first week because I, I figured out exactly what we do. How do we help? With, you know, like quickly heard feedback from customers, like not that I would ever want that for anyone on my team as their first week, but it really was uh, an opportunity to dive right in and get a sense of what does the business need. Um, and then from there, a lot of my responsibilities were really focused on demand gen. Um, again, how do we scale the business? Got it. Would you say that uh, your communications degree, was that was that helpful in landing that, that job? Because it was a communications manager role at Zoom Info. I always like to look at that just because you know, people say like the degrees don't help or some people say they do. And so I'm always curious to ask, like, did, did the, did the degree help you land that job or do you think you could have got it either way? No, I think it was a little bit of both. So I think it helped in that I felt probably more confident in even applying. Right. So yeah. I'm like, okay, this is a fit for me. Um, at the end of the day, one of the things they asked is my GPA over what the actual, uh, degree was, which my GPA was high. Never thought that would be useful, honestly. Looking back now, <laughs> glad I didn't uh, slack there. But um, yeah, I think honestly, I don't know if it helped at the end of the day, but I think it helped with confidence to even try to apply for it. Because it sense. was a role that you know I felt like I at least had some education on, um, whether it wasn't hands-on or, or not. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, when you started there, so you said there were a couple other people on the marketing team. Were they junior to you? Like, what was the layout? Was there already a VP? Um, yeah. Like, who, who were you reporting to? What, what would it look like when you started? Yeah. Great question. So we were, um, at the time, again, there wasn't, um, none of these people had reported to me when I first joined. Um, actually, some of my primary responsibilities was managing a small SDR or BDR team. Um, we're going to dive into that too, because I have yeah. questions on that. Um and I own, I did and didn't manage teams throughout my career at Zoom Info, uh, SDR, the SDR organization, but it was, okay, we have this team and they have these SMB leads coming in, like, what do we do with them? And right. so a big part of it was really more demand gen focused. Um, as we started to build out more email marketing campaigns, one of those people did start to report into me. And then we sort of built out the team from there. Um, so it was, we did have a marketing leader at the time who was, um, who was out of Israel, which is where our founder and CEO also was out of. And he, he would travel back and forth to the two offices. Um, but there was no one else in the, um, in the Boston office sort of focused on that specific uh, component. Got it. Okay. And so were you reporting to the CEO? No. So I was reporting into uh, the CMO at the time. Ah, okay. So they had a CMO at this point. Yep. And she was out of Israel. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so how many people roughly were in the company at this, at this point back in uh, 2012? Yeah, I think I start when I started, there were probably about 60, 70 people at, within the organization. Um, a lot of people within engineering, just because of how the organization was structured with the right. uh, scientists and engineers, as the CEO, um, there was a sales organization, a small SDR team, um, obviously like clients, client success and, um, we did have a Salesforce admin. So it was, you know, an IT department. It wasn't, you know, that we had all the different teams that each company would would have. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, I, I mean, you guys weren't raising VC money. So 
you know, you can't talk about it in, in sort of round of funding, but, but it yeah. sounds like, I mean, do you remember what ARR you guys were at? Cause you, you're probably at the equivalency of a series A company at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it was, I don't remember the exact number to share out at this point. Uh, of Ballpark. Where we were, I mean, were you guys, were you yeah. over 10 million? Were you? No, it was under 10 million. And I remember, okay. you know, I definitely remember some of those first, um, milestones that you hit as an organization and sort of the excitement you get within the company as you hit the the various milestones throughout. So, uh, yeah. Got it. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. Um, all right. So you start out in this role and, and, you know, what I think like, and I, I think I wrote it in your intro, right. That, uh, you make it look easy, right. Because you look at someone's resume or, or their LinkedIn profile. And when you see just, 13 years at two companies, you don't see that often, right? It's very, very rare today. I think back in like our parents' generation, it was very normal and common and expected. Um, but now it's almost expected that people are leaving companies in like two years, three years. And I think part of that's just that we're all working for startups, right? And those companies are so volatile. Um, so it's not, it's not necessarily a bad sign if someone is you know, switching companies every couple of years, but I think it is a great sign if they're not, right? Because it says something. Um, but again, it doesn't work both ways. It doesn't mean it's bad if, if someone's moving around because there's reasons for it. But uh, it certainly is, is a great look if you're at two companies for 13 years, there's just consistent promotions. So, I mean, have you self-reflected a lot on this? Like, do you, would, you know, what is it that made Anna so different from the rest? Because it obviously wasn't everyone in these companies that were being promoted this quickly. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of things. I was really fortunate enough where as we were growing as an organization and contributing to the to revenue, right, for the organization, we were able to really prove out things that were working. So as I mentioned, starting out in demand gen, started to quickly see and test out, okay, webinars are working. How do we hire someone to run these full time? Um, and so a lot of the growth within the organization and within my team was really organic. So as we proved out different channels and sort of one of the things I had to do is prove out that this specific channel will work. Okay, great. How do we hire a team to run it? So the first one was trade shows I mentioned, right? The first, my second day I went to an event uh, trade show and then from there we did webinars and email marketing campaign and nurture and uh, so marketing operations grew and, and again as we started to see specific channels contributing to either a lead volume or obviously at the end of the day to, to revenue we could grow out the team um, from there and so it really did feel like really organic growth and as we proved ourselves as an organization as a team it continued to scale um, Parts of the team grew as we needed it. So when I joined, we didn't need customer marketing. We didn't focus on it. We didn't have. We had customers, but wasn't you know we were trying to get new net new business. That was a priority. When we scaled as an organization, um, and especially after our first acquisition, um, it was clear that that was something we needed to focus on. We needed. We had been going to market with new products and solutions every day or every yeah. week, and so we grew out the product and customer marketing organizations from there. Um, and our customer marketing team was also responsible just because of that, you know, when you think about uh, my background focused on demand gen, I was thinking, okay, how do we get expansion opportunities from customer marketing? It's not just, uh, I mean, obviously a big part of it is building a customer community, but also how do you, you know, how do you get the most out of customers understanding all of the value within your product? So it's, it's sort of building that trust and getting a sense of, well, who else within that organization can we share uh, how we can help them? Got it. So it sounds like if I were if I were to kind of pull out the the nugget of success there, 
it sounds like you have an eye for finding things that are working and then figuring out how to get it to run itself, right? Whether it's hiring someone or delegating it. And so you kind of viewed your role as seeking out these new opportunities, testing things, finding what works. And then as soon as you find it, building a process around it and, and, and putting someone on it, I, I imagine so that you can step away and find the next thing and that thing can keep working, right? Um, and so I think that's a perfect way of explaining it, right? Because that is what makes a successful VP in an early stage company. In a later stage company, a successful VP is really going to come in and just execute the playbook that's already been put there. But in the early days, it's about finding it and figuring out how to get it to run itself. And it sounds like you did not, you never, it sounds like you did not struggle with the letting go part, right? You find something, you make it work, but you immediately were looking for a way to let go of it. So it did, so it ran itself, right? Find someone else to, to manage that. I think that's really good advice for anyone who's considering becoming a VP or is a VP. Uh, you can't do it all yourself. You would have drowned really, really quickly if you had tried to do that. So your job really is to find the opportunities, steer the ship, right? And, and, and find the right people to, to manage them, uh, so to speak, as, as you move on from that. I want to chat um, actually on, on two points because you brought up two things there. <clears throat> you brought up trade shows and webinars, and then, and then you brought up customer marketing. Let's chat just briefly a, a, about trade shows for a little bit. I don't want to go too long into it because this information might be just obsolete at this point if no. trade shows don't come back. No. But in case they do, I, I think they're coming back. I think it'll be different. But I know Saster's coming back. Like Jason Lemkin's pumped about bringing it back. Um, so this stuff's going to happen. It's going to come together. I think they'll be different. They'll probably be smaller. You know, there'll probably be some virtual aspects and whatnot. But I think the trade shows will come back. Um, so I'm curious, uh, from your experience at trade shows, I did a ton of trade shows at doctor.com. It was almost half of our revenue was coming from trade shows. So uh, I'm huge in, in that world. What did you guys do that made you successful there? And what was the goal of going to the trade show? Was the objective, I imagine for you, was not to close business at the show. It was probably to generate leads. That's where I think things were quite different at doctor.com. When you're selling to doctors, we were actually signing them up on the spot um, for service. And so uh, it was very different, I think, than typical SaaS where you go and you're really trying to create a brand, get uh, you know recognized and, and, and get some leads. So what was the process when you went to a show? Who did you send? What were their roles at the show and what were the expectations? Yeah. So we had, we had built uh, a, a really repeatable process when we were focused on trade shows, especially early on, uh, just because it was such a big portion of, you know, enough of a portion of the budget where it, it really mattered. They're expensive. Uh, so, yeah, definitely. Right? Like, yeah. I mean, I, just, just for the audience who maybe doesn't know, I, I mean, our trade shows at doctor.com would range anywhere from 4,000 to 15,000. And we were getting very small eight or 10 feet booths. Um, I don't know how big, but you know, you could spend upwards of a hundred K if you're getting like a big corner corner booth. Do you remember roughly what you guys were budgeting for a, a show? Yeah, I mean, they all vary, right? There are those uh, that are a bit cheaper. But if you think yeah. about on average, let's just say to, for a typical size booth, like 30,000, 40,000, a sale, a Dreamforce, you know, yep. 100,000. Okay, so you guys were, you were not getting the smallest booths there. You no. were getting probably a mid-sized uh, a booth, which is significantly more expensive. Yeah. And early on, obviously, we tried to test out shows and get a sense from a, a smaller size and then see, mm -hmm. okay, if that worked, how do we... Uh, up level right. our game there with with a bigger presence, but yeah, I mean the the purpose was how do we get our brand out there to the the people at the event, and then how do we generate as much um, 
as many leads, but really, um, you know, the right leads, qualified leads, um, getting a sense of if we could show them a demo at the booth or even sign them up for a free trial or get their information. But we did a lot of research beforehand, tried to get a sense of which companies would be at the events. with Zoom Info, especially, right, having access to contact data um, within those accounts, we were able to get a sense of, okay, who might be the right people going to this event? Can we communicate with them sooner? Can we send them content in advance so that by the time they get there, they at least are familiar with our brand, hopefully more likely to show up. Um, and oftentimes with that strategy, we actually were able to book demos prior to even mm-hmm. setting foot on the trade show floor, um, just by, you know, having a sense of what these people might be interested in, um, you know, playing with different subject lines, knowing enough that they might be going to an event, right? Something that they might open or be more likely to open um, yeah. than some some random subject line. Um, and then again, once we were at the event, the, the focus really was how do we how do we get generate the most interest? So oftentimes we would have an event manager there um, just to make sure everything was going smoothly, keeping track of and, and making sure that everyone was following the process. Was um, that a, someone from the marketing team, event yeah, manager? Someone from the marketing team uh, used to go to at least, you know, would be at at least one person from marketing would be at every event um, just to make sure. And, and obviously I expected everyone on the team to be able to have communication with, you know, any potential prospects, understand exactly what we did, uh, what we, and, and, you know, have those conversations. And so it was just an extra person there who could really, especially if we were busier, um, be on the floor and, and help with those conversations. Uh, we often had SDRs uh, join us there. Um, again, just because they're really good at, you know, booking those meetings, g- getting a sense of qualifying people, are they interested? And then especially at the beginning, we would have some of our senior reps join as well. Um, and, and again, that's because if customers had any complicated questions or um, any questions at all, you know, and wanted to talk to a rep, sometimes we'd have, especially, you know, as the company grew, uh, we had a lot of customers that we would meet. And so they obviously wanted to talk to um a sales rep sometimes ask questions about access or get a sense of, you know, what's working, what's not. Um, sometimes, depending on the event, we would have someone from the product team join us as well, just to hear firsthand what customers are saying, have a chance to, or prospects are saying, have a chance to really hear what's going on in the space. Um, so it really was a, a full organizational effort, at least, especially early on when it was a, a pretty big chunk of um, budget dollars. Right. Sounds very similar to uh, how we did trade shows at Aircall, which which makes sense. It's probably similar for most companies in SaaS. You're sending some SDRs, some AEs, usually one or two people from marketing, right? Might be there to just kind of... There, I, I think marketing is almost there more to get a sense of like, how are we executing? What should we be doing different next time? Like like they're kind of scoping the, the place. I think checking out competition too is probably always a good thing at, uh, at the show's um, what about the details afterwards, the little logistic type stuff that, you know, you probably can't just Google how to deal with, yeah. um, you know, like you come back from a trade show and you have all these leads who gets them, who doesn't get them. Um, you know, what are the rules for following up? I, I, I mean, I see your face lighting up cause there's probably a million conversations you've had around that stuff. What comes to mind when I bring that up, were there headaches there and any, any quick tips for folks? Yeah, there were definitely, uh, I don't know if I want to call them challenges, but, you know, especially as the organization 
uh, evolved, we'll call it evolved. Uh, you know, when we started out, it was okay, um, if the rep went, they get the first 10 leads at choice, and then the rest around Robin, and then, you know, who follows up. Uh, when we got, you know, when we scaled the organization had SDRs that were really focused on those types of warm leads, we really had the SDR organization um, set those meetings up for the right reps, depending on who it was. Again, a lot of the accounts um, might be owned. So how do we set it up for the right owner? Um, right. And again, at the time, right, when we had given the account manager or AE that was going uh, the leads, it was because just to thank them for their time. Right. Uh, right. So, that so let me your- ask you this. So because I've had this scenario many, many times and, I, and I'll just say for the audience there, there's no perfect way to do this. Um, when it comes to like channel overlap it, with anything, whether it's channel sales, partnerships, whatever, no matter what process you put in place to make it fair, there's going to be instances where someone is feels like it's not fair, right? Um, like you mentioned, some people may own the accounts, right? So let's say you have an AE back at the office in, in Boston and they own this account, but that person shows up at the trade show, starts talking to another rep. That rep builds great rapport. They get you know really deep into a convo and they want to continue it. They come back to the office, like, well, that's my lead. How did you guys handle that? Um, and I guess I'll, I'll tell you real quick how we eventually handled it. Um, and I imagine since I left air call, it's changed five more times because every time there's an incident, you feel like you need to change it. Um, but what we eventually said is that trade shows just get priority. And so, you know, we had to eventually just say, look, there's no way to make this fair for every rep because it just can't be like, there's just too much overlap. So we need to just do what's best for the business. Right. And so if someone goes to a trade show and they get really far through a convo, we don't want to then send that person back to another AE. Like that's just a really weird flow, even though it's what's fair for the rep, it's really not what's best for the customer. At least that's what we felt. And so we eventually made that decision and and we were, you know, we had a system in place for like who gets to go to shows when they get to go. So that rotation was somewhat fair. Um, And so, you know, it was kind of like a lottery. Like when you got to go, like you might just steal someone's lead essentially. Like if, if you get it right um, and sometimes we let people work things out amongst themselves and maybe they'll split a deal or, or something. My goal was always when there was conflict was to, to have them come up with a solution first, but it doesn't always work that way. So how did you guys uh, handle that? Was it all just kind of one off? Like when a problem happens, you'll figure out how to deal with it. Or did you put a really strict process in place and just force everyone to stick to it, whether they were happy or not? Yeah. Uh, and, and the process evolved quite a few times. Uh, at the beginning, like I mentioned, we would, you know, give the rep the first 10 leads, uh, which obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, first 10 unowned leads, I should put it that way. Okay. Uh, accounts. Um, and then as we grew as an organization, and obviously everybody wouldn't get an opportunity to go to an event, um, and nor did we want some of our best reps off the, we'll, we'll call it the, the floor, right? Yeah, um, I want to ask you about that too. So we'll, we'll touch that <laughs> yeah. next. Yeah. So what we started to do is we, um, again, we had some SDRs going to events and if we needed a senior, uh, an, an AE or an account manager, we would send some of the sales leadership. And so, um, especially to some of our bigger, most important events. And so, uh, so it was, it was fair that way. And that like, they didn't own any accounts anyways. And, and at the end of the day, they were representing for their team. And so, uh, right. it's, it seemed to work out. Um, Obviously, as we continued to grow, we didn't want to lose the sales leadership for, you know, maybe a week, think Dreamforce, right? Um, And so we started to, you know, things continued to change. Then we started to send just the uh, SDRs um, and there were specific SDRs that we would send for events. So it became sort of this 
there were different level of SDRs and different uh, SDRs responsible for different things. And so there were some that were just, you know, they're the ones who go to events um, and we were able to get them trained and, and, and ready for those certain, uh, for those instances. And there was always someone in marketing there with them as well. So it wasn't like, you know, they were, right. we were sending our, um, our youngest or most, en- you know, entry level uh, people to, a, to our biggest events. Got it. Yeah. We used to struggle a little bit with that when you mentioned like people being off the floor. Um, at one point we had a lot of trade shows uh, going on at Aircall, and it got to a point where I felt like it was probably too many. And, and there were so many of them that we were going to and really coming back empty handed. And we felt like some of them we were attending just because it was like everyone in the industry was doing it. But then we start to question like, why are we going here? Right? Like, what are we really getting from it? And what I started to notice as, as, months went by and and we repeated this over and over, especially as the team got bigger and actually would have thought this would have had the opposite effect as the team got bigger. But we noticed that if we had two or maybe three trade shows in a month, our sales momentum just really slowed down because people were traveling, they were out of the office. And like, even if, you know, and, and the marketing side of that, they're like, oh, it's just a, it's just a weekend, right? Like that's kind of the way they would view it. Um, but reality was like, it was a weekend where like, the person starts planning mentally to leave on Thursday. You know, they call it like a short week. Then they travel. Then like Monday, they're getting their rhythm back. And like, it really just takes everyone out of their sales routine, which is the worst thing to do in sales is to get out of your routine and break it. Um, And so we really struggled with that. And I never found the right solution because, you know, at one point we said, all right, we are not sending any more AEs. We just have to stop because our sales is slowing down. And maybe it means that, you know, we can't answer some of the questions at the booth at the trade show because someone's not experienced enough. But we felt like we needed to try that for a quarter because we just couldn't keep seeing like everything slow down, you know, in a month where we had two or three trade shows. Did you guys battle struggle with that a little bit? Like when you were just really busy with shows that like all of a sudden the office is kind of neglected and you're like, ah, shit, like we went too, too far in one direction. Yeah. And there's, I mean, especially in our industry, there's like, there were, or there was, I don't know what's going to happen now, but there was like season seasonality behind it. Right. So you get into the fall or the spring and it's like, there, there might be a show, three shows in one week. Right. right? So you're taking a lot of people out of the office. And that was exactly what the challenge was uh, with us as well. And so we started, we stopped sending AEs at one point um, just because if we could avoid it. Um, just because, again, it was taking their time away. Um, as we continued to evolve and had a lot of customers, we would sound actually an account manager, although that didn't necessarily solve that problem because yeah. then you know, we felt like we had someone who could represent us um, talking to a lot of existing customers as well. Um, and they obviously understood the solution and could talk to prospects. But again, yeah, it was challenging to take people out, out of the office. And even when we tried to say, okay, well, if you absolutely hit your crush your number already by that point, then you can go. But still, right, like there's that momentum. You don't want to slow them down just because they've reached um, their quota for the quarter or the, the, the month. Um, exactly. But we definitely yeah. saw that, especially early on. Um, I don't think it was as much of a challenge, you know, when you have hundreds of sales reps, um, but the it- impact becomes smaller. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't get up to hundreds of reps. We got up to like 50 in the New York office. There was like another 70 in Paris, but you know, with 50 reps and let's say the bulk of those are SDRs, you know, we had, I think 10 AEs, right. And so you take five of them off the floor and, and they're the best ones. Like, you know, plus the half the SDRs are gone. Like the, the energy just drops really, really quickly. And it's a catch 22 because you're investing all this money in the show, 
So from the marketing spend standpoint, you want to send your best people, right? But the reason your best people are your best people is because they're at the office doing work. Okay. And so when you take it apart, it's, it's like, it's hard to win in both directions. Um, so what we did at doctor.com, and I don't think this could really work necessarily in maybe our, you know, your industry that, that you're in at Zoom Info or mine at Aircall, but we were selling to doctors. And so what we did, we actually just had dedicated trade show people. That's all they did because there were over 70 shows a year. So it was enough that like, you know, people could do that full time and that worked really well. And I hired most of them as 1099 and they were part-time. This was like side hustle for these people. And these were generally folks who have been selling stuff to doctors like their whole career and they're just really good at it. And they're down to go, you know, spend a couple weekends a month in a, in a fancy hotel, you know, at a big event and just close a bunch of business. And that was awesome because it, it didn't impact my inside sales at all, except for, of course, when they sell to someone that our inside salesperson was also reaching out to. And you know that stuff would happen and you just deal with it as, as it happens. And again, we always said trade show comes first. So if someone's at a show and they're ready to sign up, we're not sending them back to the other AE. We're signing them up and then we'll figure out how to make you know, things right you know, money-wise uh, when, when we get back. So, so I think that's something for people to consider if the company is so big and you're going to enough shows to have some dedicated staff, even if it's one person who just kind of owns it, um, I think that that's very helpful because what you don't want to do is end up killing the momentum you have in the office to go to these shows. But it also doesn't mean not to go, right? Like you need to find the right balance. Uh, and when you do that, uh, it can be good. But I, I think it's hard, right? And, and it'll never feel perfect. It's probably always like a, 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 a push and pull. Yeah. I hope we have these problems again. Let's I do. I do. And I think we will. You know why? Because people want to do it again. You know, um, I mean, if you asked me that, actually, when I first started recording this podcast, probably in the early episodes, I had similar conversation on this topic. And I think at the time I said that the events are never coming back. And my mind has slowly changed on that. Number one, after speaking with Jason Lemkin and seeing how absolutely adamant he is that it's coming back and, and I'm going to bring it back and they're already doing it. Um, but also just seeing like what some states in the country are doing right now. Like you look at Florida and it's just like, they're over it, right? They're done. They're just like, they don't care. And I think that's just going to keep kind of spreading around the country as time goes by. Like, I think we just can only tolerate isolation for so long. And at a certain point, people just are like, what's nothing could be worse than just being locked up. Right. So I think the events are coming back. I think they'll be different. Uh, I think they'll probably be smaller. I, I think they'll be very conscious of of health, you know, right? They'll probably not be crowding people as much. They'll probably be like suggesting masks and things like that. But I do think that they're that they're coming back, and probably sooner than than we realize. Um, all right, I want to dive into. I had a couple other points here. Ah, customer marketing. You brought that up. That's what it was. We talked about trade shows. I want to talk about customer marketing, and I'm particularly excited to talk to you about it. And I want to give you sort of my preamble as to why, and then maybe I'm wrong, but 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 I just want to see your reaction. I would imagine, and well, let me preface my, I'll preface, I'll preamble my preamble. <laughs> I um, <clears throat> obviously former VP of sales, so I have done uh, you know a lot of shopping for data providers, right? I was a customer of Zoom Info. Um, I've used it all. I've tested every tool out there, right? Lead IQ, Discover, or all of them. Um, and no one ever loves those tools. Uh, and I'm giving you my, my opinion here. And I want to hear where, where you go. And you'll see where I'm going with this. But um, 
it's generally a tool where people's expectations are generally higher than the tools capable of delivering, no matter how good the tool is. This was very similar type of thing that we dealt with at Aircall. You know, people expect a, a voice over IP phone to work as well as their landline phone. And it just doesn't always do that, you know, but their expectations are that high. And so, you know, when you try to explain to them, look, the internet wasn't really designed to process phone calls and this is actually a big hack and like, but it saves you a ton of money. And so like, this is the give and take, right? Like you, you sacrifice a little bit, but uh, with data providers, my understanding of the industry, and, and I might be wrong on these percentages, but I think I remember reading in a few places um, just based on like tests and reviews that a lot of people have done of the tools that even the best of them, and obviously Zoom Info is at the top, right? Especially after the, the merger. But um, even the best of them, I would say, are probably 40 to 60% accurate, right? And, and I don't think that that's, that's not like, oh, the tool's not good enough or they didn't build it well enough. That's just the nature of the business because the, the data changes so frequently, right? You may have the correct contact info for me today, but then I quit my job and I leave tomorrow. And there's always that time that it takes to get that stuff updated. So it will never be perfect. Um, and so you guys were positioned as a premium product, you know, more expensive, all of this type. So that makes it even harder, I would think a little bit to, to meet those customer expectations. And so I guess I want to start with a little bit of your reaction to what I just said. Like, am I on point there? Or was that not at all how you perceived it? Um, and, and then from there, I want to see how you guys, you know, looked at customer marketing and approached that to manage expectations and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so I'm obviously very biased with this question, uh, having spent so long um, at Zoom Info. Um, and, and so I, I'd have to disagree on the percentages of uh, accuracy. Okay. What I do you think, think they are, by the way? What, what is a... Because I may just be remembering what I yeah, read wrong, but yeah, and I'm sure there are, and there are solutions out there. And I think you know, sort of my answer is, listen, there are a lot of solutions out there who are fly-by-night companies who um, don't do their research. They, you know, they'll scrub a list or steal it from somewhere, and they're like, oh no, I sell data, and yep, right. those lists will not be accurate given that 30 percent of data turns over year over year. Like people change their jobs, exactly their jobs. That might be what I read, actually. That yeah. might have been the stat that I read. Okay. Yeah. And so, and so I would say something like, like Zoom Info or Discover Org, however you might have known it, is probably in the in the 90%, 90th percent, so 95%-ish accurate, if not more. So if you think about how they gather their data, um, right, and and the verification that goes they go through, and um, right, just I'm not sure exactly how familiar the you know you sort of are, but a part of how they gather their data is reading signature blocks. You're not going to lie about your email address first or your address or your phone number and your signature block. Right. And then there's also, um, right. There's also a team of people who are verifying data. So it's, it's relatively accurate. I think the problem is that people are just so used to, or expect a hundred percent and it's not going to be a hundred percent. And, but they're pretty close to it, right? Like there are so many reps and so many SDRs, especially in, in, I don't know, the world today or where we are today, where, you know, there's, this is the the best way for them to get contact information, right? There are other ways, right? I guess you could, you know, Google it, that might take you a little longer, but in the environment today, where a lot of companies have to run their teams as effectively and efficiently as possible, right? Especially if they're, if they're struggling a bit more, they have to give their SDR and sales teams access to the best data that they can. And at the end of the day, this is the fastest and best way to get them that data. 
and that access. Yeah. And again, if it could integrate it into their into their existing systems, which Zoom Info and Discover Work do allow, um, that that's even better. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I think it's like again, it's similar to AirCall, where it's a perspective thing, right? So the customer. If they get one bad email or two bad emails, that's really what they remember, right? They remember the mistake. And it's the same thing at AirCall. You can make a thousand calls a week. The one call that got screwed up and messed up your flow, like that's the one you remember. And all of a sudden, that's the impression, you know, that you walk away with of the product. And, and uh, so I get that. Um, and we, we were Zoom Info users. We had, uh, we were, I think, so we signed up. We are we were already using Zoom Info and we were getting ready for a renewal. We we're hiring a bunch of people. So we we're shopping around like to make sure we were using the best tool before we added a bunch of users. Uh, and so we started testing everything. And my philosophy fr- from it was was uh, you know, I looked, I took my time maybe over a weekend to find who are the top players in the space, um, look at who they are, get on some calls with them the next week. And then once I, you know, I picked, I narrowed it down, I think, to three, uh, which was Zoom Info Discover Org and Lead IQ. And I just picked a couple test groups of people, you know, just got test free access basically for a handful of people. We would meet twice a week and get feedback and eventually make a decision. Um, it was always mixed feedback. Like there was very rarely a general consensus. Everyone had their own things. And that's when I realized it's all perspective. It's just like what happened today to that person, you know, with this tool, that's their overview of, of the whole platform. And as you know, you cannot take that small sample size of data and, and make a decision. And so we eventually just said, we really couldn't figure out how to make the decision, to be honest with you. Like, so we just stuck with what we had. It yeah. just seemed to make sense. And the, I guess the most people were okay with, you know, with that. Um, and I remember it was funny because I was being sold by Discover Org at the same time. Yeah. And I have to imagine that nobody knew that you guys were about to like merge. And so in hindsight, like what the salespeople said to me from each company is absolutely hysterical because they're both selling themselves against Zoom Info, against Discover Org, telling me their data is the best and this and that. And I remember, you know, we picked it, we signed a deal for, I don't know, 20, 25 grand or something. Uh, and at co- maybe three months later, the the merger happens, the acquisition and they reach out, congratulations, you know, we've, we've, we've partnered up. We now are the best data in the world and we want to charge you more money to give you access to these new, you know, this new bundle. And I'm like, is this new bundle the thing that you just told me wasn't as good as Zoom Info? And that's why I signed up for Zoom Info. So anyway, I thought that was funny, but um, yeah, I mean, that's just like, how does that not happen when you merge with your biggest competitor, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that email probably came from someone on my team. So sorry about that. Uh, no, uh, I think I gave them a little bit of uh, a little bit of heat about that, particularly because they were asking me for more money to get access to something they just told me was not as good as Zoom yeah. Info. So I was like, maybe not. <laughs> I was like, I think we'll do without it. But uh, we ended up buying it anyway, yeah. of course. No, and and you know what it is? It's when the two organizations came together. Uh, they did. They did, we did build a, a combined platform, which really took the absolute yeah. best of Discover Org and the absolute best of Zoom Info. And we wanted to make it the best customer experience. Um, and there were, you know, some, some organizations probably transitioned and, um, you know, there was some upsell there, but it really was, it wasn't for everyone either, right? Like some companies yeah. maybe wasn't the best fit and what they had at the time was perfect for what they needed. Um, but there was definitely a campaign and, and initiatives and efforts going towards how do we communicate this to to both sets of customers? Um, 
and it's not easy. There's, there's no, and I didn't say that by the way, to take yeah. a knock at no, you. That's okay. um, my, my point there really is that you were in a, in a tough situation, like, because your talk track changes, right? Yeah. You're training your reps for years and years and years to sell against discover organ. All of a sudden you now need to do the opposite, right? Now you need to say how awesome it is that you're teaming up together and you have access to, to now the best and the best, you know, com- combined, which it really is though. And I'll say that, um, you know, it was actually nice to see that happen. Obviously, I wish we had like signed up for it a few months later or something and got all that included. But, um, you know, to see that like the two best in the industry and we ultimately choose Zoom Info, I think, because it just was a little sexier. The UI was like, you know, more like just user friendly. The brand was nicer. Obviously, that's why you guys decided to keep that brand, which was a great decision. Um, and so it was cool to see that come together because I don't know. And correct me if I'm reiterating this wrong, but there were really two different, I guess, jars of secret sauce, right? Zoom Info had this, let's scrub the email signature kind of process, right? And Discover Org, I believe, has human beings overseas. They're doing a lot of manual verification. And so you both had these very different strategies, obviously one significantly more efficient than the other, but the human side of it is probably extremely valuable as well. So you put them both together and how does anyone compete? Right. Yeah. And, and so I went out and bought stock in Zoom Info right away and everything. But um, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess what are your what are your big takeaways from that IPO period? What, what were the big headaches that you had to deal with? Or, or I guess how long were you there through that period? I should start uh, with that. Yeah. So, so we knew that we had wanted to work towards an IPO for quite some time. Um, And so every month leading up and and obviously after is really focused on how do we make sure that we make, you know, obviously revenue at the end of the day, how do we make sure that we're always getting better every single day on everything that we're doing, that every team is optimized as much as possible. And that really was just a very different environment than the earlier days, right? Like it wasn't that we were focused on anything different, but the way that, you know, at the beginning, it felt a lot more like a family. And you yeah. still cared about revenue and it was the same goals. Like you still wanted to optimize on the, on everything, but it just felt for me, I'll speak only for myself. It felt more like, you know, everybody was in it together. Um, and then, you know, leading up to the IPO, it just felt a lot more uh, stressful. And how do we make sure that we absolutely can't miss and, and things like that. So um I think the environment changed, but I think it evolved slowly. Like it wasn't like we woke up one day and everything was different. Uh, I would say the first major change or uh, was during, you know, the second acquisition when Discover Org acquired ZoomInfo and overnight two competing organizations became one Um, within the marketing organization. I remember being there the weekend of the acquisition, figuring out how are we going to combine the team? Right. There was no, oh, we have a, we'll have a waiting period. We'll run two separate teams. No, in marketing, it was overnight. This is what the new team structure looks like. Sales, we let the two organizations run sort of simultaneously. We had their own set of customers, right? Um, right. So that took a little bit longer to transition. But in marketing, it really was overnight. And I felt- I guess it really, has to be. Yeah, it has to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And I felt really fortunate there. You know, the marketing leader um, with at Discover Org is just this amazing woman, um, Deanne. And she- it, it was just such a pleasure to partner with her on the transition and everything we did. And I think, you know, I can't imagine having had someone else in her place to do that with. Um, she really, I have absolutely nothing but amazing. I, I mean, she, I have n- not a single negative thought in my mind about her. She really is just 
really good at what she does. Just a really, really good person, right? There's not much else I can say about that. Um, and so, but, That's but awesome. even with that in mind, it still was difficult. You know, I had to, I met with every single person on the team, couldn't t- tell anybody in advance, right? So I met with every single person on the team. Sort of telling oh, interesting. Them. So this overnight change was a surprise to most people? Most people. Well, so the acquisition, ah. the acquisition we announced, we had a sound hall type of meeting and Henry Schuck, the new, you know, DiscoverWorks CEO came in and was kind of like, hey guys, heads up, this is what's going on. Um, and then we announced it to customers later that day. So we told the team internally first. Um, right. and but then everyone I, found out the same day, basically. Yeah, pretty so much. That's not much of a heads up. Yeah. So they're like, whoa. Yeah. Like and that's, that's a big team, piece of news. Yeah. And I believe the DiscoverWorks team knew in advance, but, but nonetheless, we sort of made sure that the team's understood and, and that, um, and, and most people were okay with it, right? They understood, okay, things change. Um, but some of the teams are right, like, if you think about it, we had a customer marketing team and a product marketing team at both organizations. And so, um, you know, at, for, for a short while, especially, um, it's sort of, how do you, it's as if half the team is new, but it's like, so I was, uh, managing that part of the organization at that time. And so it's sort of like, okay, how do you welcome these people? Uh, into the into the structure as much as possible because again overnight we were one team and one goal and at the end of the day responsible for the same results right so um that you know it it was an interesting time and then thinking back it was you know february two years ago now so um it wasn't that that long ago but um, i do have to say i think the transition was overall pretty smooth i think aside from like the personal you know, opinions and thoughts and everybody, especially, you know, coming from the legacy zoom info side, we always thought, Oh, well, we're better than discover org. And then now well, we're that's the thing, right. And that, it, it I'm thinking first- about it from that sales perspective. Like if you're a rep who's been there for a few years, you hate discover org in your blood at this point. Cause, and I don't mean hate, hate, but like yeah. when you're every single day selling against a company, like they're your rival you know, and, and you can't really get that out of your blood. It's like, if you're a Boston fan and you see a Yankees fan walking by, like there's just a little bit in you about that, you know, and it's the same thing for a salesperson. And so I would imagine that's very difficult for the salespeople at zoom info to then sort of be brought under this wing of, of, uh, you know, especially younger salespeople just maybe have, don't, don't have that, you know, professional knack yet to kind of just see past those things, but that's got to be difficult. I would think for, for a rep, what was the kind of the, the general vibe in the office when this was announced? Was it extremely positive? Like I would think this is maybe an almost an awkward announcement because it's not like, yay, we got acquired. It's like, we got acquired by our biggest competitor. Um, what was that the, like? Yeah. So, so we, you know, I think there's the, the idea that we were consuming folks competing with discover org, you know, all this time forever and ever, but that's honestly not the case. Okay. Um, when I started at zoom info, just, I don't even like, we didn't even know discover org was a thing. We competed against completely different companies at that time. Interesting. That's prospects. usually how it is too. Yeah. yeah. And that's prospects. And then for a little while data.com, but that didn't go anywhere. Cause that data was just, you know, as you know, not great. Yeah. Um, and so there were sort of a number of competitors and there's so much consolidation in the space. And so, and then um, ring lead, right? Consolidation there. So it was company after company. Oh yeah, I forgot about them. Yep. And so then when it got to the point where we were competing with Discover Org pretty heavily um, for only a short period, 
for some time. So I don't want to like sugarcoat it, but it wasn't as long, especially for the reps that have been there for a long time. Um, and if you, so Discover Org had started selling primarily to IT professionals, right? They had really segmented data, whereas Zoom Info was broader um, and we didn't have a specific industry that we were selling into. Um, and so we didn't come up against them in every conversation, just especially well in B2B um, and SaaS a little bit more, but so it wasn't as bad. Um, towards the end, they definitely were competing against us and, and you know, bidding against our keywords and stuff like that. And so there was still that, it wasn't all, you know, positive at the end of the day, yeah. but yeah. I don't think it was as much hatred. Uh, with that being said, I think people were frustrated. They didn't understand. They're like, but we're winning some of these deals. And on the yeah. Discover Org side, they saw the deals that they were winning, right? So I yeah. think it's all about- Well, they have a small, a small piece of the picture to look at, right? They're, when, yeah. when they're thinking about really themselves and how it impacts them rather than how it impacts an entire market, which- you know, I think I would imagine as I'm thinking through it, if I were the sales rep, my initial reaction might be negative. But then I think after I slept on it a bit, I'd be like, this should actually become a lot easier to sell this thing. And that's exactly you know? what happened. People sort of simmered down and realized there's no one to compete with. Like, yeah. Yeah. How is this? How, like, how are we? And you got to keep your brand. Yeah. Which you never see that happen in an acquisition. No. I mean, it, it to me, it's it's so obvious that one brand was just significantly more current and modern. What was that discussion like? Were you, I imagine you were part of that, or was that just yeah. the two CEOs decided? No, I, I was part of that, and we did. Um, there was a lot of research that went into it, so it wasn't just a decision that someone's like, oh, "I like this name better." Yeah. It was not at all like that. There was a lot of thought and research that went into it. We surveyed thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, and customers, and prospects. And we hired an outside agency to help us do the survey. And there was quite a bit of data that sort of came to the decision, which is why we came to the decision we came to. So yeah. um, I have to actually give Henry Chuck some, some, a lot of credit there that he really relied on data. And, and I, I would understand if he was like, well, Discover Org is my company and sorry, this is the name we're going with, but he yeah. didn't do that. So he um, was a lot of really thoughtful through that whole process. Yeah, it, it shows a, a level of, of humbleness there that he's able to uh, to do that because because a brand, I feel like you start a company, you just kind of fall in love with that brand M more than any of your customers do too, yeah. right? As as the owner, so it's got to be hard to to give up. But um, I would imagine that 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 decision alone made the unity of the two teams probably a lot easier because it, it you guys weren't leaving your brand. I think so. Although I can imagine it was probably pretty difficult for, um, you know, the discover org side that they're like, but wait a minute. Oh yeah. I mean, on your side. So. <laughs> yeah. I meant for um, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I think that made it probably a little easier. It made it a little easier on me, but I obviously am really biased yeah. um, with that as part of that process. So sort of knew how that was turning out. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, it was, it, it was, I think in, in all just a challenging year, we were coming from um, a year where we had really crushed it you know, on the Zoom Info side, like we really, you we were crushing through our numbers and then early February come to find out that we're getting acquired. And that was kind of at first harder to grasp, but then on the other hand, you know, it was, I'm sure, especially for the sales organization, um, exciting to understand that like, okay, there really isn't much competition out there. And then on the marketing side, you know, with the team doubled overnight, we had more resources, more budget. So I definitely can't say it was all bad and it was so difficult. Like it was a lot of work, but at the same time, we sort of grew the family at that point. Right. And so it was still, it was still exciting and, and fun. 
Yeah, that's how the behemoth companies are built. You need that level of consolidation at a at a certain point. Um, oh God, what was I going to just say? Oh yes, so the acquisition, the IPO. Was the IPO part of the plan when the acquisition happened? Or did that sort of evolve after? Like, did they say, hey, you know, we're competing against each other. We should consolidate here and then IPO. And then like, was like, why was the decision that DiscoverOrg buys ZoomInfo? Why not the other way around? Why not a merger? Like, do you know any details around how that all was like discussed? Um, I I also don't know, like, was DiscoverOrg just significantly bigger revenue wise? Um, so, so no, but the uh, Discover Org had had backing as well. So it wasn't uh, like they, you know, took cash out of their own. All, I don't know all the details there, so I don't want to misspeak. But um, we had just been so ZoomInfo had just been acquired by Great Hill Partners at the time, and I'm sure part of the decision was, okay, well we we can make eight x revenue, you know, eight x our return. Wait, say that again. ZoomInfo had been acquired by who? So. So in 2000, I want to say 17 or 18, 2018, ZoomInfo had gone through our first acquisition. We were acquired by a private equity company. I did not know that. Okay. Called Great Hill um, Partners. Also, honestly, I, they were they were great partners. Um, we had a new CEO at that time, um, Derek Shuttle, who, you know, I just working for him for, it was a short time, but like was such an honor. He's just a brilliant guy. Like I have, again, nothing but positive things to say about him. Um, really helped us understand, like, how do we like focus in the right areas? Um, he was one of the ones who said, okay, we really have to focus more on customer marketing, product marketing. Like how do we go to market? How do we evolve and innovate? And, and um, I think it was probably just the best decision at that time for the private equity firm, which, you know, at the end of the day, they made a lot of money on it. So I can understand why that happened. There's no, is, is definitely not confusing when it when you come down to it. Got it. Okay, so the financial exit for for your founding team was was before Discover Org. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Okay, that that makes a bit more sense now. And so now that the, the these guys own the company and they're looking for a way to to, to double, triple, whatever their money. And yeah. so hey, let's let's uh let's merge together. I sure they probably initiated a combo with the biggest competitor and kind of just work through the details and one thing leads to the next. And now you've got a publicly traded company that is hard to compete with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I understand the logic behind it all, you know, being on the inside of it, definitely a bit more challenging in the beginning to wrap your head yeah. around. And it makes like, you know, as, as you sort of reflect, it makes total sense. And this is, you know, the, it was obviously the right strategy for everyone so far. So yeah. Yeah, it's worked out. Well, let's fast forward a bit. So, you know, you what I guess uh what the team's coming together, like like you kind of you've done eight years there. At this point, are you thinking like I'm ready for my next adventure? Yeah, it was it was definitely a little bit of that. And and I sort of struggled to figure out what's what's the next adventure, what does it look like, right? So is it uh s- similar to what Zoom Info was like at the beginning, where I genuinely just there was this passion that everybody had and was so excited about, um, or is it something a little bigger? And I sort of uh, looked at some organizations, you know, all through the path, like, you know, big to, to smaller. Um, and I couldn't necessarily pinpoint exactly what I was looking for, or what the right fit was until I met Jaron, who was the CEO of, um, of Spiff, founder and CEO of Spiff. And when I first met him, I wasn't even sure I want to take the call, but the recruiter at the time was like, just take it. It'll at least give you a sense of like what you're looking for. 
<clears throat> and when I met him and he had been talking about SPIF, the passion and excitement that he had for the organization, the, the product he talked about, and obviously there's such a clear market fit. Uh, I mean, SPIF has a name for the company is sort of a marketer's dream, right? If you think about it, you get exactly what they do. Um, and so all those things sort of came together and it just felt, you know, honestly, there was a gut feel there that it just felt right. Um, and so I sort of proceeded on that path and I met some of the board members and I met the CRO and every single person I met with had this, had this passion that there was just no way this company wouldn't be successful. And that we all we needed to do is really like grow, you know, grow the brand and grow the lead gen. And, and, you know, that would be obviously my, my role. Um, and it just felt like the right fit. It felt like that family environment. And, and I'll be honest, it was a little bit scary at first because sort of a startup coming from a company that was very solid and yeah, about clearly, as stable as they get at that point. Yeah, and clearly a market leader. And, and so it's like, okay, well, how can we do that again? Um, and it wasn't just like, you know, it's not just like, okay, well, how do we replicate the lead flow? Right. Right. It's, it's really like, how do we find the right solution? And I really do believe, and obviously I'm biased, that SPIF is a solution that every organization should have, or at least every mid-market and enterprise organization should have. Yeah. Um, and, and the way that they had described, especially during that process, the key differentiators and just the way that they even described it, the passion that they had and the, like, they, it wasn't just like blind blindly believing, oh, this will work because I wanted to, like, there was a, there's a clear path to how it will work. Um, it's a clear need in the market. And so um, that sort of made the decision almost a no brainer at that point that this is, this is something that I, I, again, I've been there for about two months, two and a half months now, three months now. And every day is still fun. I don't have the Sunday scaries, like, and I definitely used to. Um, and the presentations that we're putting together are, not just for the sake of putting together a presentation to present internally. It's right. It's to prove a point or like discuss something that's valuable. And, and I just felt like that's what it used to be like. And I definitely miss that a little bit. Yeah. Now I, I, for some reason, you know, there's this feeling like, okay, we are like, I understand that at the end of the day, the goal is to scale and to be as big as zoom info was. Um, and I don't know why, but for some reason I feel like just really excited about that. It's not as scary. And maybe it's because I've sort of seen it happen once already. That's um, definitely why. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's honestly more exciting. And I just not like we're going to do the work to get there, but I can't wait till like we really are this bigger organization. And, and um, at the end of the day, the goal, the reason that we'll get there is helping as many customers as we can um, with incentive compensation. Got it. What's the makeup of your team look like today? And what kind of hiring are you doing? Yeah. Um, so I just had uh, somebody start today. So I'm really excited. Um, the makeup of my team as it stands today. So I have somebody in charge of digital. Um, I have somebody in charge of demand gen that started today. Um, I have uh, a content manager started last Monday, uh, a designer. Okay. And one of the, and then the next two roles that I'm hoping for is um, somebody focused on marketing operations and um, so like email marketing, marketing operations, and then from there, depending on how quickly we grow, probably product customer marketing. Makes a ton of sense. So digital demand gen, um, content, and then customer marketing, you, you work in, working in there. That, that makes perfect sense. Um, are, do you have roles open right now that you want to just plug for anyone who's, who's listening since this will be going live in a few days? Um, I don't currently, but I should okay. within the next month or so, uh, definitely. So be on the lookout for that. 
Um, you know, at the end of the day, throughout my entire career, I, one of the things I've realized is that the people are by far the most important part. Like none of what we achieved, none of it, none of what I achieved or the team achieved would have been possible without the people that we hired. Um, and early on at Zoom Info, we hired people who had grit and were just excited. And I sort of went in and showed them how to do the role that they were in. Um, now sort of getting a sense of, okay, well, how do you scale quickly? <clears throat> we're finding people who, at least at the tops, you know, for each of these departments, someone who's really done it and pro had proven success in each of these roles. And then we'll continue to hire the team from there. And, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, one of the things I think is most important as we scale and as we hire is finding people that are just truly passionate, care about what we're trying to build here, excited to, you know, help each other out. And it's not just like, hey, I own, I own digital, like leave me alone with your webinar. You know, it's not like that. It's how do we, how do we build a, a structure where people truly feel like this is, you know, everything that we achieve is their goal and the company goal is their goal. Um, and I think that's really been essential, especially with the alignment with the sales organization is truly feeling like I every day feel like the, the sales number is my number. Like it has to be my number. You did the, that was the perfect transition into uh, uh, our, our last and final topic, which is, um, well, I guess it's a little bit of an umbrella of a few topics, which is the sales and marketing relationship. And I think that that comes to me, it, I think when I say the umbrella my opinion, and I want to get your thoughts, is that uh, I think that relationship, obviously, there's a lot that goes into it, right? The leaders on both teams need to have a great relationship, and it really starts from there. You know, if I'm the VP of sales and you're the VP of marketing or CMO, whatever, if we don't have a good relationship, our teams definitely won't. Uh, so it starts there. But I think what what really, at least from what I've seen, it's the, it's the decisions and the processes, the way you set things up that I think contribute to how the teams get along. And so the big question is always, should what should marketing be paid on, right? Is it MQL? Is it SQL? Is it revenue? Um, and, and I have my own opinions. I don't think there's one right answer for every company. Um, I'm not a fan of being paid on MQLs, generally speaking. Like I think that there's just not a whole lot of point in doing that, um, right? Because that just, that literally separates the team because now they're both paid on different metrics. And so there's no alignment, right? There's no reason for there to be alignment. But if everyone's kind of paid on either SQLs where the salesperson has to say like, this is an approved lead. And of course, when they don't, maybe some people get upset and there'll be some conversations, but um, at least there's, there's something there. And then the extreme side of it is you just pay marketing on revenue, which I've never seen happen firsthand in my companies. Um, but I know some folks who've done it very successfully, some huge companies that you definitely know about. Um, and they've done that from day one. They just said, hey, here's the way we're running our whole company. And I can't drop their name just because I don't know if they want me talking about it, but um, it's a huge company that we're all familiar with. And their strategy from the start um, was every single person in the company who has any sort of variable comp. So some sort of a bonus. And this is not sales commission. This is just bonus type employees, right? Sales commission is different. But anyone who has a variable bonus, they always made it based on the company hitting their revenue target. And their idea there was, we want to win together and we want to lose together. And that may mean that a marketer did a fantastic job, but we missed our revenue and they didn't get their bonus. It may also mean that a marketer did a terrible job and we hit, right? So it could go either way. Um, but the idea was that everyone was one team and we were going to win or lose together. I say we, them. But um, what are your thoughts on that? Did you, and, and, and how did you guys uh, do it yeah. at Zoom Info? 
Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I think there's different ways and different organizations at different, you know, parts of their growth do it different ways. Yeah. Um, starting out, we definitely did it more MQL focused, right? And then SQL. And then uh, if you fast forward to today, the marketing organization rolls up into the CRO. Uh, now that's a new shit, a new change, right? At Zoom Info, uh, so they do not have a CMO. They do, they do now have a CMO. Uh, there's been some some changes there since I've left, so I can't speak exactly. But CMO reports to CRO. Now, yes, got it. Okay, yeah. so that helps. Yeah, yeah. So that problem that definitely helps. And again, um, I think it was Zoom Info is definitely a sales run organization, right? So really focused on sort of that bottom the bottom line and and how do we how do we hit hit the number as, as yeah. in whatever way possible. Um, you know, when I think and, and at SPIF, as we're building out, um, how do we track success? One of the things that I definitely have um, in the CRO here is just a great partner. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, the reason I want to take as much ownership over the number as I possibly can is just because I want our organization to succeed. And I just understand how marketing right. contributes to that. Um, and so, you know, when I think about how do we, how do we track success? So MQLs are obviously, it's a funnel, right? So I need a certain number of MQLs to get to a certain number of SQLs. So just trying to figure out what that formula looks like. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I wouldn't think my team, I don't think my team did their job if we're failing for our sales numbers, something is going wrong. We need yeah. to, if we're contributing to our, to our, you know, fair share of the percentage of revenue or close one business, um, then we need to make sure we're getting them the right leads and the right interest in the organization. Or if it's not leads, it's the right brand and the right trust from the organization so that we're winning a higher percentage of those deals. Um, so there's, you know, it's not all 100% trackable when you think about brand, it's harder to track. Yeah. But when we're, when we're built, like right now, we're, you know, we just hired, the, I just hired the team. But one of the things I'm thinking about is how do we make sure that our SDRs and our sales reps are set up for success? So how do we run ABM campaigns to the same accounts they're going after? How do we make sure that there's enough air coverage and support in those accounts that we're supporting them with direct mail campaigns if that's what they need? Um, how do we get the word out there in the accounts that they're actively going out after? Um, and then as we think about how do we track that back in, in Salesforce, you know, that's that's more of a fun project and, and figuring out how do we track success. In my perfect world, the SDRs would get credit for every conversation that they had. I'd like to set up conversations for the SDRs and give them as much credit as possible. Now, with that being said, you know, as, as of right now, we're, we're totally aligned with the CRO. And so that works. Um, I've been, you know, or I've seen organizations um, where there's not total alignment. And so it is more of a battle and saying, well, you need to accept all my leads when you don't. I, I would rather get a sense of what the leads are that the team needs to close business and then work to get those leads set up for the team. Um, right. Like, so if you think about our use case, um, the, the perfect type of customer is somebody who has, you know, a big enough sales force that has variable compensation or, company that has variable compensation. So let's just say, you know, starting with at least a hundred reps, I'm just making it up for, for the use for this example. If I get them 20 leads with 10 sales reps or 10 people with variable comp, sure, 10 leads, 10 conversations that could close, but that's not our ideal persona, right? That's not, right. that's not, I know I'm not setting our sales team up for success if that's not who they're trying to go after. Um, and so, and so there's a lot of making sure we have the right persona, the right person, the right company size that we're going after 
in our efforts. Now, with that being said, there's obviously customers or prospects that are coming to us directly from our website just by researching a solution like ours because they need a solution like ours. Um, and that doesn't mean we're going to turn them away, right? right? But just getting a sense of like, what is the contribution from my team to the accounts that the sales team is actively going after? Got it. Yeah. It's it's really tough when you start trying to track all that stuff, the multi-attribution, right? And like, what? how do you wait one thing versus the other. And especially when trade shows get involved, right? All of this stuff gets super messy. And I know it's a nightmare for marketers. Um, and, I, and from what I've seen, you have the marketers who I think obsess over trying to get all that data perfect. And then you have the other ones who I think kind of just accept that it's not going to be perfect. And they just focus really on just getting shit done. And I think that's the right approach. Sounds like I see you nodding. So I, I imagine that's, that's your approach because at the end of the day, you cannot have perfect data when it comes to attribution because it's impossible to know like really what influenced somebody. If they read an ebook six months ago, they went to your trade show, they ran Google searches, they got cold called three times from us. Like it's really just a combination of all of those things that eventually got them through the door. And that's really all that matters, right? Like at the end of the day, that's really what matters. And um, what I what I like uh, or, or don't like to see is when when people just kind of get too consumed with trying to figure out those metrics and it doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't really make a difference to have, you know, a, a, I guess a more elaborate, you know, sense of, of tracking that stuff. Like it's, I think it's enough in other words, to just know the touch points that were there and trying to apply weights and all that stuff. I don't know. It gets really complicated. Um, it's cool to have, but I would say don't waste time on it, right? Like, like just focus on on what works and, and bring revenue through the door. And I think anyone would agree that we'd rather hit our revenue goal and not have enough data to tell us how we got there than to not hit it and have so much data to tell us why we didn't get there, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so that's what I always say when when you get too uh, too sucked into the into the data thing, and and because it's also just like every data point you track, it's like another thing someone has to do in the process and and all this stuff. Yeah. So. I try to automate it as much as possible, but um, I think ideally where I was going with that, um, I think what what it ultimately comes down to is the data maybe is a driver of how some of the folks on the teams will view their roles and how they may perceive other people's roles and there could be conflict. But I, I think as long as the teams are being led as one team, right? And there's unity across that leadership and the revenue model obviously really helps with that. I think that that's the key. And what you don't want to see is is like, you know, a Monday morning meeting where like one team is celebrating that they crushed their goal, but they the other team didn't. Yeah. And that's when it's like you have two teams here. You do not have a sales and marketing unit. You have two separate teams. And, and that's where I see that it, it's usually not a good sign, right? It's kind of better if like marketing wants to celebrate, you know, that they hit their goal, but maybe they're like, Hey, we should maybe not high five on the floor because sales just didn't hit their goal. You know what I mean? Like, and they're kind of conscious of like each other. And when I see that happening, I'm like, this is a good, like healthy relationship here. Um, Cause it's okay to have your individual wins, but at the same time, like it's, it looks very strange if like one company is having an enormous celebration, or one company, one team is having an enormous celebration, but the company missed their revenue number or vice versa, you know, it, it just starts to send the wrong message, I think. But um, yeah, this has been really good. We, we touched on a lot here. We've got two minutes left. Any, any tips you want to throw in there? Um, there's going to be all sorts of plugs for, for Spiff added into this episode. This episode was sponsored by Spiff. So uh, anyone who's listening to it knows that already. Um, but uh, do you want to chat, you know, just for a minute here about what's coming in, in, 
you know, in, in 20, in the rest of the year at, at SPIF and, and what people should look out for? Sure. Um, so, you know, we're continuing to, to scale the organization, continuing to hire um, in all the key positions. And I think a big part of it is scaling organically, right? So as we, as we need, um, as we're growing, whether it's, you know, we need more engineers right now, for example, because there's a lot of innovation happening and we can't get to the, the different features of the roadmap fast enough, right? Um, and so there's definitely a lot coming from the product standpoint. Um, and so as we release more and more things, right, we'll, we'll come to market with that and, and, you know, continue to scale and hopefully, um, you know, let the market know that we're here and how we can help. Um, and as we bring more and more customers on, um, I think, you know, hopefully get the word out there through, through word of mouth as well. There's a lot, you know, a lot of companies are struggling with sort of this issue. And a lot of times, unfortunately, they're still stuck in uh, Excel spreadsheets. And you'd be sort of surprised that, you know, you'd think, oh, Excel for SMB companies. Yeah, it totally makes sense. But it's not just SMB. It's mid-market and large yeah. organizations that are, are yeah. still using spreadsheets. And so, um, and I think that the, probably the reason is, you know, Excel works for them, but it's not, it's not scalable, right? Like you can't build a bunch of commission plans on Excel. And the legacy players out there, although obviously a ton of respect for them, they've been around for a long time aren't solving people's problems in the way that they want. You yeah. know, it's not, they can't, they can't self-service. They can't make changes on their own. Uh, it's not, you know, so it's not easy. That's to make the key change. by the, like what you just hit right there from my perspective is, is the key. It's what, and, and so everyone, I guess maybe knows if you're listening that I'm, a, I, I joined as an advisor, right. To, to spiff. Cause I fell in love with the idea for exactly what you just said, because I have taken demos in the past of the legacy, you know, tools out there. They're very expensive. They require a lot of engineering, um, and it just it always to me felt like my teams were nowhere near big enough to justify that level of you know work and money that's going to go into setting it up. And so it was just never a big enough priority for me because the work to just do it monthly in a spreadsheet was still less than that investment and the time investment to go with this big elaborate tool that requires all of like you know, engineering resources and whatnot to set it up. And it was so customizable that it's one of those things that like, even when you see it in the demo, you don't really even know if it's going to really do what you want. Cause it's like, you have to build it out. Right. Yeah. So like, you don't even really know what you're getting and then they want $50,000 and, you know, so we just never did it. But, but the idea of just a more lightweight self-serve type tool that you kind of just get it connected to your CRM, probably customize, you know, a formula or whatever, and you have these beautiful dashboards that can be at a team level or a rep level, I imagine. And, you know, reps can see that money growing in real time. That's really cool. I, you know, I've made like a couple hacky dashboards in the past with like Salesforce or something to try to replicate that. And it's always hard to, to get it exact, but um, that concept is really motivating. <clears throat> um, and, and I just think it, it's so obvious now. And, and I wrote even in my LinkedIn profile, like, if you have a sales team, like you just have to have that now, because I mean, that would have saved me probably, I was trying to think about it the other day, like the value prop for you guys is time, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's the first value prop. The second is like the inspiration, motivation, like the sexiness of it, I would say, but like you're saving people time by just automating something that's generally a pain in the ass to do, right? It's not fun calculating commission. Um, so that's pretty cool. And I would have loved to have those four or five hours back every single month. And I know the operations team, you know, who eventually took that off my plate would have, would have felt the same. 
And I remember like, even when we hired an ops team to take that off my plate, it must've taken me three months to even train them, you know, on how to do all the little intricacies. And I remember this ops guy we hired, he's a super smart guy. And, and he caught on to everything I was telling you, taking him very detailed notes, but he's like, there's so much nuance here in just understanding a lot of details with the way that like the value of our deals worked and all of this sort of stuff. And like, uh, it always seems simpler on the surface, but when you actually start like trying to calculate commission, you're like, there's all these edge cases and there's all this and that. And like to just have something that can automate that for you is, is so obvious. Nobody should be spending time calculating commission. Oh, for sure. And it's just such a, you know, commissions are really complex and complicated and difficult, right? Like there's a lot of work, a lot of teams, oftentimes there's organizations, there's teams of people within organizations. Um, and, and, you know, again, the goal for us is how do we make it very like transparent for the sales org as well, so that they're aware of exactly what their commission plan will look like, that they can see, well, what if I close everything in pipeline? What will that look like? Right. So yeah. they get a sense and something they can log into and really get motivated every day to come to work because their job is sales is really hard. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's how do you make sure that they have full visibility and transparency into what their commission plans look like, which is at the end of the day, why they're coming to work every day and yeah. how do we simplify it or uh, make it easier for the admins and the sales ops and, you know, the compensation specialists within the organization to actually do their job effectively as well. Um, and so, again, I, I get really excited talking about our, our solution because I really see how we help people at the end of the day do their job better, more efficiently, more effectively. And so, um, you know, that's why it's really exciting. And, and I hope that we get the word out there so that people stop doing it in spreadsheets as much as yeah. possible. Well, look, it's it's a simple, obvious thing to add to to your stack. I mean, I wouldn't even question it at this point if it integrates into your CRM, which I think you guys are just probably knocking integrations out as time goes by. Uh, like, just just get it right. Are you guys in HubSpot, Salesforce now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we definitely have sale, you know, Salesforce and uh, NetSuite and any of those integrations that are really necessary for you know for the whole system. Right. Push and pull data in, of course. Awesome. Well, I love it. I'm sure every team out there wants five hours back. And I would say, you know, there's probably also a, an, a value add on the recruiting side. You know, when you're, when you're interviewing salespeople and they come in and they're asking about the earnings and the commission and all this stuff, it's really nice to be able to just show them something and say, well, look, here's the dashboard of our team right now. Here's what they're earning today. And it's like, there's no weirdness because the transparency is, is really there. And, you know, I always had, a, I actually had a spreadsheet that I kept, I think I told you this when we first spoke on a TV in the office um, that was our scoreboard. And I never wanted to use Hoopla or any of these gamification things. I really wanted something that was just very simple, that had a few columns that had everyone's name, their goal, their percent to goal, like their actual, right? Um, we didn't have the commission up there. We actually talked about it once, but we never ended up doing that. But just putting that board up on the wall meant that every single person who walked in the office knew who was in first place, last place, like who's doing good, who's terrible. And that's a social pressure, right? That if you're not leveraging social pressure, leading sales, like you're just missing out because you may as well. Um, you're hiring competitive people for a reason. So put up a scoreboard and they will be more competitive. Nobody wants to be at the bottom. Everyone wants to be at the top. And so to, to do that same thing with commission is brilliant. And you can show that off to people who are coming in, uh, you know, in interviews and whatnot. Yep. And I think that that would quickly eliminate any hesitation or fear that they may have about the comp plan uh, and is it is it uh, transparent? Am I really understanding this? Because you know what everyone is scared about with commission roles, especially entry level, is 
they're telling me this is how much I could make, but what do people really make? Right. That's always the question. And that's why people go and ask other reps. And, you know, I used to encourage people who were interviewing, I said, just go message anyone on LinkedIn that works here and ask them. Like, uh, you know, I'm inviting you to do that, but I don't think most people are comfortable even telling candidates to do that, but it's cool to be able to just show them. So uh, assuming everyone's crushing it and making money, otherwise you might want to hide the Swift dashboard for for a little while. <laughs> but uh, And one of the things that we hopefully will help people with is getting a sense of, you know, what is, what, what is happening in the market and what are the commission plans look like? So, you know, some additional insights and analytics to, to other organizations without obviously saying what organization they are. Right. Oh, that's right. We talked about that. Yeah. You guys are going to have such cool data. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. So can we expect to see uh, some of that in the, in the form of marketing, like, like, uh, you know, similar to how I guess Gong Labs has like a lot of cool stuff. Will we be seeing sort of uh, the Spiff Labs uh, at some point? I don't know what we're calling it yet, <laughs> yes, but you will, right? So cool. some analytics of sort of, you know, what, what are the benchmarks in the industry and, um, and how do we, you know, share that data with people so that they understand at least either best practices or, um, you know, I hate to say just best practices, but what else is going on out there and they can- Well, it's good to know. Them. You know, I mean, yeah. Trish Bertuzzi puts out um, a report all the time, the bridge group, right? And there's yeah. tons of good stuff in there. Uh, it, it keeps us up to date on just like, what's the average salary? What are people earning? Like what's going on in the market? Uh, and you need to know that when you're hiring. So that's super yeah. useful. So that's very cool that you guys are going to have that. That's a marketer's dream to have valuable data that people are curious to hear about because it's going to be a never-ending, you know, just just pool of stuff for you to make content out of. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. No, I'm excited for it. We're going to dig in and, and really dig into the data and get a sense of how do we, what's the best content to share that people would be interested in and something that could help them with their jobs. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're, we're just up on time. Thank you so much uh, for joining everyone who's thank you for listening, viewing, subscribing, all of that stuff. Um, I wish you the best of success. We'll be obviously staying in touch closely over the, the coming months and years. Um, so we'll, we'll keep everyone in the loop, but everyone make sure that you go check out Spiff today and uh, we'll see you next time. Hopefully we'll, we'll do this again sometime. Definitely. Thanks so much, Colin. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Colin Cadmus podcast. Please don't forget this episode was brought to you by Lessonly. Check out Lessonly.com. That's L-E-S-S-O-N-L-Y.com. This episode was also brought to you by Spiff. Check out Spiff.com forward slash Colin. Please don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you so much for listening and watching, and I'll see you next time. Ooh.